I think folks now want to come in and have a little bit of freedom and make that role themselves a little bit, which you know makes sense. Some people are very, very strong in certain aspects of that role and may not be the same as the person there ahead of time or fit directly into this box. And I think there's just different paths to be successful. Hey there, dental economist. If you're a dentist owner or a leader within a dental business thinking about growing production, case acceptance, patient and staff satisfaction, positive outcomes, and everything else that comes with running a dental business, then you're a dental economist and you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Dental Economist Show. We're meeting at the intersection of profit and purpose as I sit down with dental leaders who share their stories about dentistry, business, and growth. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Dental Economist Show. I'm your host, Mike Huffaker. On this episode, I'm joined by John Fiddler, founder and CEO of Fiddler & Associates. Since 2017, they've been proudly offering a nationwide executive search and consulting service in the healthcare industry. John has placed over 200 people throughout the country for DSOs, manufacturers, distributors, you name it. He specializes in hiring, training, and building teams that deliver quality healthcare. You may have seen him on the stage of the Dental RCM Bootcamp in November, or you've possibly found a new role via him and his business. A mutual connection of ours, uh, our editor-in-chief here at Planet DDS and a connection facilitator extraordinaire, Beth Gaddis, introduced me to John, and I'm looking forward to hearing his insights on the dental industry, hiring market, and where he sees things going in 2024. So, John, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here, and uh, yeah, appreciate Beth connecting us and She's kind of the uh, the connector extraordinaire, as you mentioned, man, so I appreciate it. She absolutely is. So, pleasure to meet you. And I was looking at your background, and of course, one thing that, that sticks out is that you started in Major League Baseball. Yes. <laughs> How did you go from that to working in dental? Yeah, I'd say uh, yeah, smooth transition, man, smooth as sandpaper. So, it, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it was great being there and I was uh, graduated and went to, I was in the baseball industry and as soon as I graduated college, got into like scouting and player development. And uh, it was great just as I'm sure most people are aware, a lot of that money is at the top of the food chain and uh, some of the higher ups. And so it's time to kind of grow up and get a real job and start contributing to the family financially. So my wife had a, had a role in the pharmaceutical industry, kind of got me looking into medical dental equipment type, you know, roles and uh, ran into Patterson. A dental, fortunately, and I had a good run there. So it was just kind of a switch over into Patterson and, uh, you know, started networking. And so here we are. So it's kind of spread the wings and start connecting folks. So you were with Patterson for, for a number of years before launching Fiddler & Associates in 2017. Is that correct? Yeah. So what gave you the confidence to launch out on your own, leave your corporate role at Patterson and, and start your own business? Yeah, I look back and it's crazy. You know, you just, uh, life was very good. And thought I was going to retire there in the chair here in Austin and uh, running the central Texas market. And it was great. And I think what happens, I found myself just connecting folks. I'd get manufacturers calling and saying, hey, do you know anybody looking for a role? We've got an opportunity. I'd get folks, you know, friends of people kind of saying, hey, I want to get into the dental industry. And so I just kind of found myself in the middle of putting folks together and kind of look back to on my Diamondbacks days of really enjoyed just the puzzle pieces and putting teams together. And, you know, even hiring at Patterson myself was fun. You know, you just try to find different parts that fit the team and different personalities and kind of what everybody needed in all these different roles so that the group can be successful. And so 
I just kind of thought, man, I felt like that was really intriguing to me and, and uh, had a good network and thought, man, I think there's a little bit of a need for it. I hadn't really found anybody in the industry that kind of focused specifically, you know, within dental at that time and uh, just kind of spread the wings. And luckily, you know, ran into some good folks and through the network, people supported me and and I was fortunate enough to kind of get off the ground. It took a little bit, you know, it's like building a business. It, it takes a little bit of time and definitely scary. And you look back, you know, with the family and all those sorts of things and take the leap. It was crazy, but it's been successful. And, and luckily, uh, it's just such a great industry to be in and, and good folks to know. So here we are. But they, that was a leap of faith, honestly. Obviously, it's it's worked out well with, with hundreds of placements over the past seven years or so now. Were there any moments that you had, especially in maybe the early days where you doubted that choice and thought that you might have made the wrong decision? I think as you get out and you, you, know, you learn things and you kind of learn the process of the hiring and especially when you're doing executive search, it's not, you know, you're not placing an ad on Craigslist or, you know, LinkedIn or Indeed or anything, you're spending time and getting to know folks and getting to know the role. And so they're definitely, when you branch out, you're kind of like, oh, I'm going to start, I'm going to have a couple searches here in the beginning. Everything will go great the first couple months. And it took a while for that process to unfold, even though we had a couple searches early, just the process of it, it takes a little bit longer than I had anticipated. So yeah, those first couple of months, it was, uh, looked around, man, I thought, what the heck did I do? I was in a pretty good spot. And Again, it, it all leads to, and you learn and you look back on it and actually it was pretty normal at the time, but it, when you're just getting into it, such a learning curve and just kind of the first few months there, you're just dragging things and meeting people and trying to find the right fit. And, you know, it's your first couple searches, so you want to make double sure that they're great. And so it just kind of drug out a little bit. So I would say right in the beginning, it was definitely a little bit tense around the household. You just kind of mentioned the almost obligation that you feel to make the search great for both parties that are involved and for anyone really starting a new role in a new company is scary. And it doesn't really matter what level you're at, there's always more unknown than there is known. How do you go about helping build that level of comfort on both sides of that interaction to ensure that the person that's hiring as well as the person that's looking to find their next opportunity are both excited and entering that engagement with a positive outlook? I think what we try to do is just our goal from the start from both sides is transparency. And so just being honest and, you know, nobody really wants to come in, I think, from a group and say, hey, here's why this is open or they're growing. There's going to be growing pain. So everybody wants to say how great everything is from the group side. And so we say, OK, you know, that's great. What are you struggling with? So then, you know, we try to get the transparent answer and truth of, hey, you know, we're growing, but, you know, maybe the foundation's not there. It's a little bit of chaos. And so it kind of digs in a little bit. And I think same from the, the candidate is all candidates, especially when they get on the phone with us, it's an interview. I mean, they're trying to make themselves look good. And, they're, and so I think from our standpoint, it's kind of breaking them down and saying, okay, what do you struggle with? We don't want this call to come back to us three months from now, you know, and say, hey, this is not the right fit. And that's kind of part of the, the dragging out process that we learned in the you know, previous question was folks reveal themselves, jobs reveal themselves, groups reveal themselves over time. And so you want to make sure you're giving it its due diligence, but you don't want to be a speed bump and slow the momentum of anything. So there's kind of a balance with kind of a little bit of an art form, honestly, with keeping things moving, but allowing folks to expose themselves to, hey, here's some things I don't like. And, you know, we'll give them a little bit of a stress test of how, you know, do they follow up? Do they, a gray area to go do? And so they call and ask questions about it. They just kind of figure it out on their own. So it really kind of crystallizes itself over a little bit of time. And so I think that's one thing that we start with is just being transparent. And nobody's perfect. The job doesn't have to be perfect. The group doesn't have to be perfect. But if we can kind of check all these boxes that make it make sense for both sides, then it's time to move forward in the process. Yeah, transparency is a 
fantastic concept and super important. But as you've pointed out, it is a real challenge for anyone really to open up and express where there are real difficulties. And I've yet to see in any business that has uh, just perfect execution all the way around. Everyone has kind of their, their hidden areas that are extra challenging. And so I would imagine that for your business, it is particularly important to really kind of dive in and get an understanding of that in order to kind of make the best connections. So along those lines, how important is the relationship building within your business? And how do you go about maintaining relationships with not only candidates, but with other groups so that you can continue to have that relationship over time where you don't need to kind of start from square one with an understanding of what their transparent challenges are? Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't think there's really a simple answer to that. I think it's kind of a matrix a little bit. There's a lot of things that happen and kind of the same thing from our side. Transparency seems very easy, but I think you really almost sometimes you can't see the trees through the forest because you're just kind of in it, you know, and, and you don't maybe even know your own faults, even though those things are there, but you just kind of deal with them. So they don't really seem like faults, but maybe to a candidate, they can be looked at as, as something that's not perfect and, you know, in the group. So I think from us having the experience of now doing this kind of being really integrated into the culture of just kind of the dental industry or the multi-site healthcare industry, we've kind of seen all these phases of groups and the problems are typically unique to the group, but you can kind of see it maybe from the outside, you know, if it's a young startup and they're growing, you know, those sorts of things is like, Hey, maybe there's not a standard policy and procedures in place. And the owner just that's the way it works. You know, we just figure things out. But from a candidate standpoint, they want to make sure they're walking into the right type of situation. And so I think, again, kind of just the knowledge in the industry, trying to treat people how we want to be treated as far as kind of the network goes. You know, we're honest with folks and sometimes they don't want to hear that and it doesn't go well. And that's OK. We want honesty back. But I think for us, just kind of the referral network of staying present, treating people the right way, not overcomplicating things, just, hey, this is what we do. We feel like we're really good at it and communicating throughout. And I think there's a lot of coaching. Uh, I mean, I'm a sports guy, so I was kind of relate it back to sports a little bit where it's, if you tell them the truth, they may not like you for 24 hours. But if you tell them what they want to hear, they're probably not going to like you long term. They're not going to appreciate it. And so we try to do that. And obviously, you have to polish it and make sure you're saying it in the right way. But and really just feel like being honest with people, they appreciate it and they respect it. And, and again, you know, you genuinely have the best interest of the group out there and in kind of the circle of life, it's the best interest for us too. So as long as everybody's kind of swimming that same way and on the same boat, luckily it's come pretty easy, I think from our side, but again, it can get overcomplicated and kind of messy sometimes. So we just kind of try to plow through it and hit it head on. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast you did with Bill Newman on the Group Dentistry Now show a few years back, and I heard you refer to the the DSO dental space as Dental Mayberry. And I think that that is a very kind of fitting description. And, you know, you're talking about being honest and, and given, you know, the sometimes small feel of this industry, what advice do you give to candidates to ensure that they don't create a reputation where they become an undesirable hire? due to either the reputation that they have from past roles that they filled or past engagements? And is that something that people should be concerned about and that that you've seen before? People are going to make mistakes throughout the process. I mean, we don't always have a crystal ball of saying, hey, if we join this group, this is what's going to happen. Or maybe this group, we feel like it has a great name out there, but maybe financially they weren't where we thought they were in the marketplace. And so you get in there and the group folds or it doesn't get funding or, you know, all these different things. And so 
really for us, I think from a candidate standpoint, if you go into a role having a solid reason for it and you can explain it, I think that's really all you need. You know, if you're genuine about, hey, I was looking for a title and this role offered me a title, that's okay. I think, you know, I'm kind of an old school guy, you know, old soul. So when I look at resumes, you see people jumping now every two, three, four years where, you know, it used to be kind of a badge of honor. You stayed somewhere 20 years and worked your way up. And those days I kind of feel like are gone for the most part. So I've had to adjust mentally. And so our first question is, hey, you know, we see some jumping around. It's not an immediate red flag. I mean, if there's 10 of them, you know, maybe. But if it's a couple, you know, every three, four years and they've increased their responsibility or increased their title or increased financially, I don't think those are looked at as bad things anymore, you know? And, and so sometimes you get into a, a large company and just kind of that ceiling's there, you know, that boss is not going anywhere for a while. There's not opportunity there. So you kind of start looking around a little bit. And so I don't think, think back in the day, that was a red flag. You know, it's like people weren't loyal or they weren't this. But I think if nowadays we've had to kind of shift our mindset that if they're genuinely looking for something and again whether it's opportunity money title whatever that is it's okay as long as they're you know bought into that and, and legitimately i guess just focused on that's kind of what they feel is their next step then we can kind of work through anything yeah so kind of speaking along the same lines of a shifting mindset maybe shifting expectations the boomer generation continues to retire gen x which depending on what you read on the internet or those, you know, kind of between the ages of 43 and 60, it's, you know, a little fuzzy on, on both ends. They currently hold the highest percentage of executive roles in corporate America. They're 35% of the workforce, but they hold over 50% of leadership roles right now. The percentage of millennials in leadership roles is expected to increase. And millennials are almost 40% of the workforce, so a larger percentage than Gen X. Do you find it all that candidates from different generations have different expectations? And do you need to alter your approach at all as a result? I think it really depends on when you speak in broad terms. I, you know, I, obviously there's, there's a reason those terms are there and kind of those studies and if 35% of Gen Xers are now 50%, you know, those are true facts, right? So you can't dispute the whole generalities or everything. I think what we try to do, and this is maybe why we're a little bit more successful kind of on an individual level is. Yeah, we can look at somebody and say, okay, you know, obviously they're in this age range. They, you know, there's graduation dates, there's all these sorts of things, or they come from this type of group or they come from this type of company. And it's very easy to just put them in a bucket, you know, and say, hey, they came from a large DSO or they came from a large company. They're probably very corporate in how they do it. They probably had a playbook for these sorts of problems and maybe aren't able to think for themselves. And I think what we try to do is maybe even go in with that, just kind of be on the lookout for it. But you really look at each candidate, each opportunity uniquely. And so just because they come from a larger group may mean, hey, yeah, they, they did have a playbook. They had a good resource. You know, they had these folks they can assign other things to, but that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to do everything. You know, they wanted to have a little chaos in their life and try to figure things out. And so that's what we try to uncover throughout the process is looking at everybody in generalities and <laughs> for opportunities because VP of operations at a DSO can mean 50 different things. And so it depends on size and location and, you know, funding and where they're, you know, so we try to look at each opportunity individually. We look at each candidate individually, and that's where the, the puzzle starts getting put together. If that's a fair way to put it. What can and cannot be trained in terms of hard and soft skills? That is a great question. So I, I think in hard skills, I think a lot of it can be trained. I think you can learn how to look at certain things, how groups want you to, or how that role wants you to look at those things. We'll place like a, 
director of revenue cycle management or, you know, somewhere along those lines. And one group may do it a little bit differently than, than the next. And so those kind of hard skills, I think, in a role are uniquely pointed to that group. And so what they're looking for in that role may be completely different, but the hard skills are there. Obviously, the revenue cycle is going to be there and you need to push, you know, those things through that process. I think where we kind of see like intrinsically, you can't really teach it as kind of, we call it the want to. And it's kind of those soft skills of, you know, do they want to get better? Do they want to be there? Do they want to treat people right? You can read leadership books and you can do all these things, but do they want to be a leader? Do they? And so I think a lot of it kind of hovers around that want to in the middle. And so when you dig deep into candidates, is it something that they feel like that's what they want to do? You know, just because they were a great regional manager does not mean they're going to be a great director of, of operations or a direct, you know. And so there's kind of that ceiling. Do they want to do that? And so I think as a group and as an executive search firm, trying to dig in to find out what that want to is and then kind of leverage that of giving them the opportunity. So I don't know if that, you know, hopefully that makes a little bit of sense, but I think those soft skills are a little bit they're harder to teach because I think they're a little bit more intrinsic, but you know, they're in there. You just got to figure out, you know, the, what's the, the John Gordon, you know, put people in the, the right spots on the bus, you know? And so I think that's a little bit more intrinsic. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Energy bus. Great book. So when you're talking about the one, two, I actually find this really interesting and it's something that resonates a lot with what we look for in our business as well. When we're hiring new folks to come and, and join the team, how do you qualify and get an understanding of, of what the want to is and whether or not that that motivation actually exists. Yeah. Simple answer. The first thing is you ask, right? And so what do you want to do? What's the plan? And that's where I think kind of people start giving you insights into it. And, in the, you know, I think the art part of it is, you know, when you're talking to somebody, you just kind of feel it, you know, like you just feel like this is, they're being truthful there. There's a passion there. And I think if you just kind of ask questions up front, and I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking on the podcast, but that's the point here. If you just ask questions, people start to reveal themselves. And, and again, that's all part of the process. And so we'll have folks on the initial interview or initial call, they'll kind of tell us some things and, you know, we kind of pick things up and then, you know, we'll give them a little bit of homework on it or we'll give them a little bit. And it's, it takes them four or five, six days to kind of come back to it. Maybe they're just kind of telling you what you want to hear. They hang up, they send you an email, they kind of put everything in there, you, you know, you've done that to me, tell them the want to, and the passion is there. And I think that's where you kind of start weeding things out. You know, do people get excited when you bring things up that they've talked about before? Or do they just kind of pass along, you know, like, well, you were really passionate about this on the first call. Now it doesn't really light that fire. So you kind of start questioning a little bit and kind of continue to just ask questions. And hey, you know, you mentioned this on the first call and we saw this. And so now it's not, you know, is that really the truth here? Is that really what you want to do? So really just kind of nitpicking and dig, kind of doing a deep dive on some things that we'll pick up on. And, and I think too, knowing the industry and knowing kind of what folks are looking for, there's some questions and some things too that we'll see that, hey, this group may have this opportunity and this lines up and kind of just gather their, get their feel for it. And good way to look at it, I think, initially from our point. I think that's really well said. It's some of that consistency over time and observation, ensuring that the person is continuing to state and behave in ways that align with what they said that they wanted to do. And I would imagine with many of your searches, and I'll just ask, they are longer processes because you're you're seeking to find folks at uh, high level engagements to fill really crucial roles for organizations. What would a typical length of time look like to fill some of these searches? 
Yeah, it's almost like a funnel. The higher up and the more focused it is, a little bit longer time frame. And so that's kind of the initial point. There's obviously a lot of different things that pull at these and kind of deviate a little bit. If we get a group that I have a bunch of buddies that went to Texas Tech, so I always use Lubbock, Texas as my, like, uh, I love Lubbock. But if they're looking for a very specific role in Lubbock, Texas, that's going to take a little bit longer than somebody in Chicago. And so there's geography. Are they going to be competitive on the pay scale? Are they, you know, an established group or they a start, you know, all these things kind of start that funnel getting a little bit smaller. So again, it kind of depends on the group, uh, you know, in all honesty, you know, somebody says, Hey, I want somebody that's run a 200 location DSO. Well, those are pretty finite people. It's a very limited number of folks. And so the candidate pulls a lot less. So that extends the time. I, you know, Typically, we would say like on a regional manager or kind of an entry-level uh, management job, if you're looking at 45 to 90 days, is pretty typical, uh, you know, I think. And I think that gives the role some time to breathe. It gives the candidates some time to expose themselves, kind of think about things. Obviously, you're lining up schedules, you know, we're in the holidays here talking about, you know, schedules get crazy and it pushes things out another two, three weeks because everybody's busy. So there's a lot of things that kind of pull at those, but the higher up you get, I mean, I would say if anything goes around uh, six months at a C level, that's probably fair. Uh, just depends on how picky we want to get and kind of what the job market and candidate market's like. But that 45 to 90 days is pretty typical for like a mid-management and then probably that 90 to 180 at the upper level. Yeah, you mentioned something interesting there about the finite pool of candidates for specific roles and use the example of a you know 200 location DSO that's looking for somebody to come in and, and run the business, whether that be a, an operations role or RCM or something else, and that there's not too many folks that have had that identical or exact experience before. In the tech world, we kind of talk about candidates sometimes as stretch candidates. And uh, quite honestly, when, when I joined Planet DDS uh, a little over four years ago, I likely would have been considered a stretch candidate. I was being asked to do something that I had never done before. I had seen it done or watched it done and been a part of others that were responsible for doing it, but having the sole responsibility of building out a go-to-market function within a software company of the size that we were at that time was new. So how do you think about the balance of experience that somebody has as well as their potential or potential for upside? And do you find some groups with maybe a higher tolerance of risk if there is greater potential upside? What does that look like in the decision and thought process of these searches? Yeah, I think that's kind of uncovered a little bit kind of in the initial call with the group. They may be running super well and it's a pretty well-oiled machine. And, you know, maybe they had a, a VP of finance that took a job now as a CFO somewhere, right? So, but that role was pretty buttoned up. They had it running very well. At that point, I feel like there's probably a little bit more forgiveness in somebody coming in learning kind of the role and, you know, obviously they're going to make it their own and change some things, those sorts of ways, but it's, it's run pretty well. They're not going to walk into a hornet's nest. And so that may be a little bit more forgiving where we can pull somebody from a med spa or a veterinary type group and they can come in and maybe they need to learn the lingo of dental or maybe they, you know, and vice versa for working with a med spa. Maybe it's somebody that kind of goes that way where I feel like the leash maybe gets a little bit shorter is a group that's just growing. Things are kind of chaotic a little bit. They're growing faster than maybe that they have the foundation for. And so we talk to them and say, hey, it probably makes more sense to go find somebody that's maybe done this specifically, pull them directly in 
And then it's kind of a more of a plug and play. And so the ramp up period is a little bit shorter. They can walk in, maybe bring some best practices with them. They've done before and implemented some things. They kind of know what's going to happen and really reduce kind of the, you know, the financial risk and all those sorts of things. So it just kind of depends on, on the role and what they're up for. And, uh, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, you know, there's both sides of that is if things are running very well. They're kind of stale maybe a little bit and they want somebody to come in and come in and bring some new ideas so we'll go grab somebody from a hospital system that maybe looked at use some different types of software technology or those sorts of things that can maybe bring in and kind of make things more efficient uh, than what it was doing just because it was great doesn't mean it's perfect you know and so we try to ask those types of questions on our deep dive call of and a lot of times too that the these types of searches they come in knowing what they want and so we don't want to talk them out of that. However, we do want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate. And, hey, have you thought of this? Or other searches that we've done, we've seen somebody come in from the outside. They brought new experience in or new kind of thought process in. And it, it has, you know, would you be open to those types of candidates? So it's just kind of that start off with a general question and kind of dive in a little bit. And, and all of a sudden now that candidate, is, they were just so locked in on, maybe they're open to a little bit different background that kind of opens it up for everybody. I like the way that you frame that a lot about the environment within which somebody's going to walk into and the level of experience that may be needed. And everybody's got to get their shot sometime, right? And it probably makes more sense for somebody to get their shot in an environment that is not quite as chaotic. And with having some of the experience of knowing what good looks like, I think that pedigree of where somebody had come from likely plays a big role in whether or not they're able to kind of take that next step into that next position within another organization. We kind of look at intrinsically on the candidate too. Do they just have an unreal business acumen? Can they walk into, you know, they're just kind of people that are successful and get it and understand business and managing people. And, you know, those are the unicorns, you know, and so for us to kind of dig in on those certain things and say, hey, we can throw this person into role A, they're going to be great. We can throw them into role B and they may be completely different, but they're going to be successful. It just may be a little bit different path for them. So we'll try to look at all those sorts of things and kind of use the stretch candidate. For this next question, I, I'm not sure if there is any difference, but I, I'd just be curious from when you started in 2017 to now, is there anything that dental professionals seem to want now that they didn't seven years ago? Yeah, I would tell you, uh, starting in about March of 2020, things shifted quite a bit um, with expectations. And so, you know, they got a couple of different fronts. Number one, due to, you know, COVID and the working from home and those sorts of things, I think from a candidate standpoint, that has become very, I guess, attractive from certain types of roles. Obviously, you get into operational roles, you need to be out in the office and those sorts of things. But candidates are really, I think, still have that in their mind. They still kind of want to work from home. And I think right now we're going through a little bit of a shift where it's maybe that the candidate market's a little bit heavier now. And so now the, the groups have a little bit more leverage and saying that we want you in the office. And so I think, again, both sides of the coin and not to be completely gray, I think it just depends on what the group and what the role needs is. Is it something that, because it can now be a little bit more conducive to work remotely, it opens up a huge candidate pool. And the softwares are a little bit better. You know, I think in the beginning of this, we've worked so much forward in how weird it was to have a, like a, you know, remote team. And now it's kind of like that we've all adapted to it. It doesn't feel like you're incohesive or anything like that. You can build kind of that culture, even being remotely. And so I think that that's been the number one thing, obviously, with just, you know, everything that happened over the last couple of years that uh, changed in, in the industry. 
It used to be if you wanted to join an executive leadership team, wherever that company was headquartered, you were relocating to that location. Have you seen any relocations pick up again? Because I, I think you're 100% right. For a very long time now, it has been a scenario where executives have been able to start new roles within new organizations and not have that requirement. But is that something that you have seen start to change where these organizations are looking to have their executive team all in the same location? Yeah, it's kind of in a, the middle part of that now. So there's definitely a lot more call when we start searches of, hey, we're we're pretty confident we want somebody here. So then that obviously is where we start the focus and those sorts of things. And then the reload comes into play if we're not finding local candidates. You know, can we have folks move into it and they're open to it? So I do think that that's kind of baby stepping into that. You know, the other side of that is we've also seen groups that say, hey, they don't need to be here full time, but if they can come in Tuesday through Thursday or if they can just kind of be present in the office and kind of, you know, help build that culture, it doesn't need to be all the time. Because I think too, from an employee standpoint, you don't need somebody around all the time to kind of understand it. There's different ways to kind of get those messages out and be present to people, even though you're not physically present with them. I think that that's something that's maybe adapted a little bit too. Yeah, we've actually started to take that approach where it's more of a hybrid approach. And because I'll tell you, one thing that's just really hard is when you decide, hey, we want people to be in the certain geographic area and you go from having the entire country as a talent pool where you can find the best of the best anywhere at any time versus needing to kind of constrain yourself to a certain region. It's a hard trade-off and it is something that needs to be thought through to determine whether or not that is the right move and if the benefit outweighs that exchange that you get. We try to start off with ideal. You know, if, if we feel like it's going to be better to have somebody local, let's start off there. And now if we're getting limited number of candidates, maybe we expand it, but can this role accommodate that? And can the group accommodate it? And the culture of the group, I mean, there's just so many things pulling at everything all the time. But, you know, we don't want to stretch it so far and it's going to break the band. And so we kind of walk through those sorts of scenarios and you play out best scenario, worst scenario, and typically it ends up somewhere in the middle. So that's my other dental Mayberry I'm going to coin is uh, somewhere in the middle, man. That was it. So... <laughs> There we go. I like it. So you, you just mentioned culture, and I think this is important. How do you define culture within a DSO? I know that cultures can vary dramatically from DSO to DSO, but could you share maybe a few different approaches to culture that you've seen that have been successful and maybe different? Yeah, no, I think you just asked me, like, what is culture? It's not what maybe the owners say it is. It's if you go ask the employees. I think the culture also depends a little bit on the employee and what they're looking for. So we all say, hey, we want everybody to feel valued. We want to reward people. We want them to have a great career path. You know, all these sorts of things. That's what we want our culture to be. So does that mean Mike coming up to the desk every once in a while, a little pat on the back and say, hey, we appreciate you. And, you know, here's a little gift. Here's a little, whatever that is. I think there's just different ways to build it. I think the smart folks, it's not so much like, Hey, we're, we're going to go host a big event and everybody's going to come. We're going to have these speakers. And, you know, those days, I think, you know, those are great for certain companies and, and the way that it gets people better and makes people better, brings them together and makes you feel like, Hey, we all are on the same boat here. You know, there's other ways of doing that. I think, you know, there's kind of that, the general group goal of this is what we want the feel of the group and company to be. And then I think kind of upon management to kind of dive into individual employees a little bit and say, Hey, you know. John wants just to make sure he can get off at three o'clock on Fridays to make sure he goes to his kid's baseball game. And that creates an unbelievable culture. They talk about family and they allow us to go do this. You know, other ones are, 
I want a bonus when I stay overtime and I directly affect these things and I want rewarded for what I decisions on and get, and then you get a big bonus. That person gets a bonus on those sorts of things. So I think it's just kind of a way that you can build trust with your employees and make them feel, you know, that, that what they think matters. And, and again, it doesn't always have to be money. It doesn't always have to be all these things. You may have already answered some of this, but from your perspective, what are the best groups doing today to attract and to retain top talent? To me, it is getting to know the candidate and getting to know the employee. And so, you know, if kind of knowing what they're currently doing, are they happy? Are there things that they can kind of bring input in and you respect their input? And, and they're the ones in the trenches every day. We're all in part of the wheel and, and making things move. And you just want to know that your thoughts and what you are doing, they're going to trust you to make those decisions. They're going to back you up on those decisions. They're going to give you every opportunity to be successful. And if that's changing a policy or procedure that maybe hasn't been there for a while, I think that makes people feel good and that your thoughts and are valued and, and they're implemented and they're, you know, they implement change. And so I think there's those sorts of things. I, again, I think it's just kind of knowing that candidate and what their goal is for the next step and making sure you're communicating about it and you're truthful about, it. Hey, you know, you said you wanted to be a, a director of operations and we put these things in place saying, Hey, if you did A, B, C, D, you know, we're going to have that opportunity and you've only done A and B. And again, those are hard things to hear sometimes, but you know, I think people do appreciate that. And if they know that that road is there and that they're being heard and they're being valued as an individual person, you know, in whatever way they prefer to me, the number one thing that people are doing to retain folks. We've talked about director of operations, COO roles, RCM, you know, these are all really key, crucial functions within DSOs. And I know that you place a lot of candidates in those areas. Are you seeing any new roles being created within DSOs that maybe weren't common or didn't even exist, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. We're seeing a lot is at the beginning of these, uh, you know, when we started in 17, 18, 19, there was a lot of business development type roles. And that's from manufacturers. That's from DSOs where, hey, we're going out, we're on the hunt. We are, you know, we've got all these investments coming in. We're cash heavy. We're going to go kind of gobble things up and grow kind of on the outside, if that makes sense, whether it's through acquisition or, you know, going out and building a, a new office or whatever kind of that thought process is. And so when you're not growing on the exterior, you look interior. And so now all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, a higher priority on the revenue cycle side, a higher priority on things that tighten up operationally to make the cash flow a little bit more efficient and collections and, you know, those sorts of things. I think if we had to say there's new roles coming out, it's probably a little bit more of like analytical type roles, you know, where they're not just so much, hey, this is our operations. Now we're looking at in the operations, if we make these changes, and we have somebody to kind of go in and study if, you know, whether it's procurement or, um, you know, all these different things that they can look at technology. If we implement this technology, what are we going to do? They're getting a lot more minute and specific on the changes that it's going to, you know, occur. And I think too, not just financially. I mean, obviously that's the goal. I mean, that's why we're all here, but I think on the, the employee side and on the resource side, those sorts of things too is. Fortunately or unfortunately, I think it just kind of depends. We'll all adapt, you know, at some point, but technology coming into play and using AI and using these sorts of things, I think are now a little bit more create the creative groups are doing that because I think they're looking to see, hey, how can this save some finances or save us some time or make us more efficient on the insides? 
What are some of the biggest mistakes that can be guaranteed to push employees away or drive talent away from your organization that you've seen groups make? I think number one is just being very, you know, I, I think as the world has evolved and you have talked earlier in the, in the podcast about just kind of being an old soul and kind of went into a role and this was structured and this is what it is. I think folks now want to come in and have a little bit of freedom and, and, you know, kind of be, make that role themselves a little bit, which, you know, makes sense. Some people are very, very strong at certain aspects of that role and, and may not be the same as the person there ahead of time or fit directly into this box. And I think there's just different paths to be successful. And so I feel like the groups that are being productive and kind of changing the industry and kind of changing the way we place folks are, this is what we want. We're open to some different things. Let's look at all this and see how they're going to fit. And then allowing that person to kind of come in. So I think that's what's most maybe attractive to a lot of folks coming in is just that, you know, again, we'll go back to the culture. And I don't know if that's really exactly what it is, but I think it's just kind of the mindset of that group of, hey, we're going to bring really good people in and figure it out. And that, that's where I feel like is the people that are ahead of the game are open to those sorts of, of candidates. So you've spoken at some various events over the past year about dental recruitment. Um, what are you learning from the people that you meet on the ground at these events? And what are some of the areas from your perspective that are the greatest uh, concerns or problems that DSOs are facing today? And it could be related to recruitment or just anything in general. I think from the group side, you know, again, kind of getting back, to, it's that kind of crux of, we want folks in, in the office and those sorts of things. That's where I feel like it's kind of starting to bubble up a little bit of the employers are wanting folks in, the candidates are wanting a little bit hybrid or remote, those sorts of things. So I do think that that's maybe a little bit of where we're seeing, you know, kind of the biggest, I guess, just kind of pulling apart, you know, at the seams. And so ultimately, you know, it shifts and everybody works out and people adapt to those sorts of things. I mean, that's just kind of how the market works and people start to ease up a little bit on their expectations or their, you know, needs and non-negotiables and they'll get into it. But I think, you know, being at these events, you know, you're seeing the groups kind of wanting one thing, you're seeing the candidates want a little bit. And so we're kind of in the middle of that kind of look around and say, Hey, how do we referee this match here a little bit and make it conducive to both sides? But I, I would say that's kind of been the, the feel over the last 12 months of kind of the shift in the, in the industry. As we head into the new year and, and head into 2024, what's something that you're just excited about that you're looking forward to? A couple of different things. So Number one is I think just being a part of this industry is just really good people. And so I think every year my job is I talk to new people all the time and I just get excited to continue to kind of grow that network. I, and, and truthfully, my core, I feel like is just connecting people. And, you know, obviously we need to make money doing it and those sorts of things. And it's the job, but I just love meeting good folks and kind of new ideas and the, the way things they, the way they look at things kind of maybe coming in from making outside industry and bringing new products and those sorts. I just kind of love that innovation of candidates, basically. So those are things I think that number one that I, that I look at. The other side, maybe a little bit more pragmatically, you know, within the industry is, you know, I think the Fed has kind of leveled off with some of the in interest rates and those sorts of things. So that tells me we're starting to get a little bit more of these business development roles. People kind of looking three, six, nine months ahead. And so those roles are coming back. And so I think when the, the industry is kind of growing that way, it just makes things more fun. You know, there's a little bit more excitement around the industry. It kind of feels like things are heading back the right way, those sorts of things. So from our standpoint, we typically kind of feel like we're getting calls from folks, maybe that they feel like their group's not doing well. And, and so we're getting a little bit of a insight into some things coming down the line with certain things. And then the other side is, hey, we're also from the group side, seeing a little bit more 
BD type roles or these kind of outside growth roles. And so kind of seeing that happen is, I think going to be awesome for 2024. Pretty excited. I agree completely with that. I've seen the formation of some new groups recently as well. And it's just exciting to see the growth and kind of that entrepreneurial spirit pick back up. And so agree completely that I think that's a, a trend to watch as we enter 2024. And hopefully the, the cost of money gets a little bit cheaper and it's not such a high interest rate environment uh, sometime in the not too distant future. Where do you go yourself to learn? How do you stay on top of trends in dental or just any other subjects that interest you? The internet is an unbelievable thing. And so, you know, we can read, uh, you know, and I think this goes for everybody from, you know, I was talking earlier about the family, you know, from a freshman college that he can go, that just the access that people have to everything is unreal. So, you know, I think from our standpoint, obviously we try to keep up on industry standards, things that are kind of in the market, you know, again, in generalities, this is kind of what's happening. And, and those are all things that it's just good for us to know where I think we really pick up a lot is, you know, kind of these trade shows and events, talking to folks in person, going and listening to speakers, you know, going to these private equity conferences and kind of, they're always forward thinking as well, kind of what's next and those sorts of things. So going to some of these private equity events and just kind of sitting there and these folks' jobs are to kind of look ahead and say, hey, you know, we we're expecting ABCD to happen. And then that kind of allows us to plan ahead as well. So we're just kind of riding their coattails a little bit of the interest rates are going. So, okay, do we need to beef up on some business development type roles or some entrepreneurial type roles? Just kind of riding their coattails and following along. So those are things I think that to me are, you know, the internet, you can learn anything you want, but really going and kind of talking to the people, kind of seeing what's happening in the industry is you know, at these events and listening to those speakers is great. Following up on the theme of education, is there anything that you hear from folks that you are placing or that they share that they wish they knew more about or that they had studied up more on? And you did mention a little bit earlier, you know, somebody that had just a phenomenal business acumen and maybe they were kind of a unicorn in, in that sense. Are there any subjects that somebody can really kind of improve their chances of landing a high level role in a dental organization and spend some more time investing in themselves. We're kind of in the process of placing a CEO. And one thing that they wanted in their contract was allowances to go to these types of things. And so we're starting to see that a little bit more, you know, of, of going to these whether it's industry conferences, whether it's leadership conferences, kind of whatever it is, allow for those sorts of things. And so I, I think that that's something that I would, especially kind of mid to senior level candidates, anything with communication or leadership that you can get better on. And I have a hard time, you know, even listening to this podcast, I'm sure between the two of us, we're just spewing gold and this is unreal for people. I think if you can just at least pick up a couple of nuggets, you know, honestly, you know, you're not going to sit there and just be blown away by everything and not agree with everything or not, you know, those sorts of things. I think going in and saying, hey, I'm going to listen. It's always good to hear other people's perspective and folks that are in the industry and kind of seeing what they're seeing. But I can just get a one or two or three things I can take home and put that to use. Those are things that to me are going to make people better. And so if I had two kind of overall things, it would be the leadership and communication and whether it's, you know, style, how to do it, using AI for community. I mean, all these different things you can kind of take that next step and get better with. That's where I would start, but kind of allowing that we're starting to see it a lot more from these leaders of making it kind of mandatory that they get to do that. 
That's an interesting trend if that continues. It's common that companies will, and sometimes it's just paying lip service, that there is a focus or desire on professional development, but there is oftentimes not follow through with actually providing the training opportunities and putting people in those positions to continue to improve at their role. So having candidates take ownership of making sure that that happens is something that I hadn't heard before, but I absolutely love the concept of that. You know, I think we've all been there and say, you know, we do A, B, C, D to help you get better. And then, you know, maybe, you know, it kind of happens, but not, not, uh, you know, maybe just kind of say yes to something to get, you know, kind of lure folks in and make it seem better. But, you know, when you get it in writing and, and you're able to go to some of these, uh, conferences or, or you have a, a author or you have a speaker that you follow and want to go to their, you know, conference for a week or, you know, weekends. I just think it helps everybody, honestly. I mean, I know it's, you know, time out of the office and those sorts of things, but I, you know, I, I think it's an investment in people and that's what makes people better. Awesome. Hey, I really appreciate the time today, John. This was great. I think there were some nuggets in there uh, for sure. Some things for people to take away. Absolutely. One or two. I feel like if, if that is the case, then it's a mission accomplished here. How can people find you? You know, where, where are you online on that beautiful internet that we talked about? So uh, www.fillerassociates.com is, is uh, the easiest way. There's a contact button on there. Uh, it has all our phone numbers and emails and everything else. But, you know, I always love to give out my cell phone on these things and email addresses. And so Jay Fiddler, J-F-I-D-L-E-R at uh, FiddlerAndAssociates.com is directly to me. And my cell phone is 512-550-8604. Kind of feel like that's what separates us as, uh, you know, you get to call and talk to people and, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you on an individual level. So that's uh, a big thing to us is just kind of keeping it small and, and productive. So ho hopefully that helps. Hopefully we're not hard to find, but we'll be around all the conferences and those sorts of things too. Fantastic. John, thanks again. Really appreciate the time. Appreciate the opportunity. The Dental Economist Show is brought to you by Planet DDS. To find out more about how cloud-based dental software by Planet DDS helps unleash dentists and their staff to focus on patient care, visit www.planetdds.com. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes by following wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.